I think we need to rethink high school and kind of go back and have a much higher expectation of what high school students are capable of in terms of growing up and operating in the adult world to some degree. Hello, and welcome to the Arts of Language podcast with Andrew Poudois, founder of the Institute for Excellence in Writing, or as many like to say, IEW. My name is Julie Walker, and I'm honored to serve Andrew and IEW as the Chief Marketing Officer. Our goal is to equip teachers and teaching parents with methods and materials which will aid them in training their students to become confident and competent communicators and thinkers. Podcast episode 385, part two. We've never done this before, Andrew. Well, we've had continuing podcasts, yes. but we haven't actually had the same number twice. Right, right. Nor and that have... might confuse people, especially <laughs> if they're counting the weeks of their life by our podcast. Well, and we've decided to release both part one and part two on the same day, which is another first for us. Right. And this one might be... Shorter than usual. Okay. But you never know. Well, we do want to be respectful to you, listener. We figure your walk is about 30 minutes. It takes about 30 minutes to clean the kitchen while you're listening to this. So here you go. Part two of Hacking High School, which is part of our Homeschool 101 series. Now, we've already addressed four different ways that you can hack high school. The first you mentioned was speech and debate competition, right. specifically. Or, or mock trial or speech contests of some sort. That kind of all falls in the same category, though we didn't talk much about mock trial, but right. I think you get some of the same benefits. Right. And then you talked about doing logic and that you actually taught logic for four years to a group of high school students. That's incredible. Well, it, you know, it was a sequence that was laid out mm -hmm. kind of for me. I didn't figure out what no. to do. <laughs> and, you know, if I did it again, I might use different materials. Sure. But I did learn a lot from the process of teaching traditional logic one, traditional logic two, which got pretty dry, mm. material logic, which had a lot of challenge, and then really just slogging through Aristotle's rhetoric. Oh, boy. With a, a help, mm -hmm. with a, a you know workbook, guidebook, and teacher's notes and all that. I think if I did it again, I would do it better and probably <laughs> a little different. Of course you would. C can I tell you one of the funniest things that I learned in Aristotle? Absolutely. So Aristotle talks about the forms of government. Okay. And points out that the highest and best, most efficient, efficient form of government you could have is a benevolent monarchy. Oh, okay. Right? Plato's philosopher king. This idea that if you had a truly good person who could be a dictator, it would be the best government you can have. And, you know, we see some examples of that in history like Cincinnatus, hmm. who was a humble little farmer. Uh, he had been a senator, a politician, or whatever, and they came to him and said, please come and save Rome. Mm -hmm. We're in desperate straits. And he said, yeah, I'll do that, but I have to have absolute power over everything and everyone. You got it. So Cincinnati comes out of farming retirement, takes over the Roman Republic, has absolute power, defeats the enemies, and then does the most remarkable thing in history, abdicates, 
turns back over power and goes back to farming. Oh, wow. And this is why uh, George Washington is referred to as the modern Cincinnatus. In Mm. fact, there are statues of George Washington, kind of his body and face in a ancient Roman costume. Nice. Because making that connection. Mm Mm-hmm. So, so that nobility. But Aristotle said you can't really have that because, you know, power corrupts. Mm-hmm. So the next best form of government would be probably an oligarchy. Right. Where you have a few people with shared power and those few people can keep each other kind of checks and balances type of thing. And our form of government with the executive, judicial, and legislative branch is in part based on that political philosophy of the division of powers for the benefit of the country as a whole. Mm -hmm. And then he talks about uh, democracy. And here's the really funny thing. His definition of democracy is very different than what you or I may think democracy means. Sure. Isn't that where everybody gets a vote? Democracy. Yeah. You know, rule by majority rule Mm -hmm. or in a republic, uh, you elect officials who then have a majority rule. Mm-hmm. No. His concept of democracy is that you would choose by lot at oh. random from a pool of qualified people those to rule over you for a limited period of time. Oh, interesting. And I will confess, I was teaching this right when the most unpleasant election hmm. ha- had happened. It was happening where I really did not want to vote for either of the candidates. And I thought to myself, you know, I would almost choose at random someone from the Tulsa phone book, <laughs> if there were phone books anymore, <laughs> than these two people I oh, don't I'd like. See, and I see. So it was kind of funny. But that idea of, you know, everyone should be qualified, they should be educated and have the skill, the leadership skills, to serve for a limited period of time in a position of authority. Mm. And uh, that was kind of the early American ideal as well, was that, and, and Jefferson's desire to have a highly educated population so that everyone mm-hmm. would be qualified for leadership capacity mm-hmm. in some, some aspect of mm-hmm. civic life. And then, of course, the worst form of democracy is a despot, and oh. that's where you have a a non-good monarch, mm-hmm. a, a dictatorship sure. that is solely based on the acquisition of power and control. And right. So I just thought that was so funny about this concept of democracy being random among qualified people. Yes. And I don't know, there's something... I still like about that idea. It's not practical in any sense, but anyway. Uh, So, yeah, I did teach that. Uh, We also talked about, what else did we talk about? Well, theater and performance. Oh, right. Drama and theater. Yeah. And then the the thing I tend to get long-winded about. Which is why this is a part two. Yeah, is the dual enrollment, dual credit Mm -hmm. uh, idea of doing college while you're still the high school age. Yeah, not a new idea, but becoming increasingly popular. And there are a lot of good links yep. in in our show notes from that. I was going to say last episode, but I guess I have to say the first half of this episode. Exactly, yep. Okay, so there's a few more things I think are worth bringing up for contemplation. One of them 
is for high schoolers to have an opportunity to teach younger children. I love that. And, you know, we, we all we all know this. The best way to learn something is... By teaching. Yeah. And Andrew, you actually perfectly articulated that when you talked about how you taught logic and how much you learned. Isn't that exactly right? Yes. In fact, um, over my history of homeschooling my children and teaching classes to them and other people's children, I have often chosen to teach something because I wanted to learn it better. Nice. Um, I I said one year, I said, we're going to do economics. Mm. Well, I have never taken a class in economics. I have read very few books about economics, but I wanted an excuse. And I knew what books that I wanted to use with these kids. And it was fantastic. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I was learning along with them. Yep. And, you know, this is one thing that, you know, I, I believe many homeschool parents may have a, a, a strong belief or just a subconscious fear that they can't teach something they don't know well. They can't teach something they don't have formal training sure. or formal education. And it's just not true. You can stay three steps ahead mm-hmm. and learn right along with kids. And in a way, it's almost better because there's a humility, there's a an effort you have to put out. You know, if you teach something you know really well, well, okay, that's good. You know it really well. You feel like you're doing a great job. But it, I feel like you get this kind of energy mm-hmm. and excitement about learning along with the students. Yep. So I have, um, in many cases, in many circumstances, tried to uh, facilitate opportunities for older teenagers who are still, you know, in high school, so to speak, to teach classes to younger children. Mm-hmm. And one thing I would point out is, you know, you can teach anything. It doesn't have to be one of the subjects that would appear on a report card, say, or on a transcript. Sure. You can teach anything that you love. I have kind of focused on this idea of helping older kids teach writing yes, to younger kids. Yes, of course. Kids. Of course. And part of that is because if they've done a writing program for three, four, five years, they know it pretty well. I mean, they could... They've, they've got the checklist memorized. They know the rules. They could draw it from memory, you know, probably every one of the model charts from the nine units. Mm-hmm. They have wrestled with it and understood it really pretty well. And so now go on the other side of that and start teaching kids who are three, four years younger how to do a keyword outline, how to use a dress-up checklist, how to follow the topic clincher rule. And and the reason this works so well is because they don't have to figure it all out. They don't have to redesign the wheel. We we have a well-designed yes, we wheel. Do. <laughs> and so it's it's easily transferable. Mm-hmm. And yet in teaching something that has a system and you don't have to figure out what to teach, you can learn a lot about the subtler aspects of teaching, mm-hmm. how how to manage kids, how to encourage kids who don't talk much to talk more, how to help the kids who talk too much give space to mm-hmm. other students, reading and marking the student papers. There's a lot that is learned in that process. And then just, you know, organizing it and and being accountable and keeping everyone accountable and 
watching the clock, all, all sorts of aspects of teaching that you really can't learn except by doing it. Sure. And I, I kind of think we do teacher education in this country a little bit upside down where someone says, oh, I want to be a teacher. I'll go into elementary ed. And then they do, you know, three years of philosophy of education, history of education, psychology, and they get all these theoretical classes before they even ever walk into mm -hmm. a classroom and spend a few weeks. And then it's at the very end where they do their you student know, student teaching. teaching. Mm -hmm. And even that, I don't know, is consistently well done. I'm sure there are some places it's well done. Mm -hmm. If I were in charge of it all, I would probably say, oh, you're interested in being a teacher. You can spend the first year, first nine months, hang out with this master teacher and just watch them every day after day after day. And don't, don't even worry about anything except observing closely. Mm -hmm. You know, all of the kids that I have encouraged to teach that I've known personally, you know, they've been in my classes for sometimes many years. Sure. So, uh, you know, I know that they learned how by watching, observing, doing. Then they can go figure it out on their own sure. from that context, from that background. So, uh, you know, I have recruited kids to teach writing classes. I have taken my top Latin students and put them in charge of teaching, you know, the next level down, generally kids that are two to three, maybe four years younger than they are. I have encouraged teenage girls to do a book club mm -hmm. for girls. Mm -hmm. And I have encouraged teenage boys to do a book club for boys. I mean, that may sound, I don't know, segregationist or sexist or whatever, but I do think there's a comfort level mm -hmm. that can happen when you have an all-girls discussion and an all-boys discussion, especially in that awkwardness where, well, maybe the teacher, you know, she's 15 or 16 and there's a 12, 13-year-old boy. That that could be tough. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But the, this idea, and, and, you know, we have materials to, to help people learn to do this. You know, in terms of literature, we've got Adam Andrews teaching the classics. Exactly. It's a teacher training course, how to have Socratic-style conversations. You know, our, our first debate coach mm -hmm. when we moved to Oklahoma was my student when I was the assistant coach for our debate team in California. Right, right. And she was, she was you know, young, but in charge of it all. Yep. And so that worked out very well. And there's just any number of things. I've also heard of kids 16, 17 years old who have offered online classes mm. to presumably mostly homeschoolers around mm -hmm. in something they know. One example was this girl wanted to teach cooking to kids. And she did it this online? And she did it online. Nice. And I thought, well, that'd be a little hard, but I guess it's possible. Like, sure. here's the ingredients you need, and I'm on the video, and yeah. you're at home in your kitchen watching me, and we can all do this together. And I love it. Yeah. So uh, I thought, well, that's that's nice. And, you know, you may or may not put that on a transcript. I think you could oh, sure. figure out a way 
to, to do it. And we have resources to direct our listeners to if you need help with your transcript. So again, link in the show notes. Speaking, of course, of Lee Bins. And yeah, her, her uh, services. the home scholar. Yeah. Yep, and, yep. and there are lots of people who will help you sure. figure out how to make transcripts if you need to. Out of these I'm, unique high school classes that you're cobbling together. Right, Online right. cooking class. Hmm. What does that count for? Hmm. So um, that's something to think about. You know, do you have a student who has kind of an aptness and is there a little community that you can put together? Sure. And, you know, it. it it wouldn't necessarily be a high income thing, but I do think people should pay something. Sure. And if you've got several kids paying a little bit, you're probably making more per hour than if you're just, you know, getting your first job at Chick-fil-A or whatever. Right. Sure. Along these lines, I am also thinking about other ways in which teenagers can interact with adults Hmm. in a meaningful way. Sure. uh, Rather than just being students of adults, but shared responsibilities or operating, you know, in their their world. Mm -hmm. I, I know I've said this on previous podcasts, but one of the things that I remember so clearly from John Taylor Gatto and his teaching and his books, Dumbing Us Down, An Underground History of American Education, he taught eight grade English in Brooklyn, New York for 16 years. Wow. But And he was a New York City teacher of the year, New York State teacher of the year twice, I believe. Mm -hmm. One of the things he said is what every 13-year-old in the world wants more than anything else is real, honest to God, meaningful life and death responsibility. Well, and I do have to, you know, mention that we do here at IEW have a couple handfuls of teenagers working for us. I won't say that they're doing life and death type work, but they're absolutely doing work that we need to have done. We're not just making things well, and, up. Well, and they are expected to operate as adults. Absolutely. And, you know, this is why I think every kid, as soon as they're old enough to legally get a job, mm-hmm. is excited, not just for the money. But because this is, I'm going to test myself in the real world of adults. Yeah, right. And uh, I've always had, you know, kids working in the business, whether it was my kids or their friends or employees' kids. I've always been in favor of getting them in as soon as possible. And, you know, it's not a fit for everyone. But I would say for the most part, I mean, probably 90 some percent, they rise to the occasion. Absolutely. And they they learn basic stuff like show up on time and work while you're getting paid and don't chit chat too much Mm -hmm. and keep focused and, you know, all of these just basic life skills. But another way that I have seen families and, and individuals do this is to start a little business. I love that. Yep. And uh, I have a talk. I haven't done it for a while, but uh, I love doing it. It was called uh, Freedom Ship and Entrepreneurship Education, I yep. think. And, you know, in that, I talk about what you can learn from starting a little business. And if you think about our, our arts of language, listening, speaking, reading, writing, thinking, well, that's kind of like the absolute greatest integration because you have to be able to read and listen and acquire information. And then you have to be able to re-articulate verbally and in writing information to be able to have a product and sell it. You have to have a lot of kind of logical skills and some good 
basic, simple, mm-hmm. but solid math skills yes. to understand basic economics of cost and expense and profit and overhead. So, you know, I've, you know, seen various little books over the years that I have kind of referred people to in right. terms of, you know, start a business with your teen, right. lemonade to leadership, uh, these ideas for that. And, you know, I, I often say, if you had a little family business, you don't really even have to make much money to gain huge benefits yes. from it. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's a virtual product. You're you're in the information world and you're creating something and being able to sell it or monetize it online. That's where everybody thinks because that's where the big money may be. But you know, there are other entrepreneurial activities. My son had a little business uh, we started up with him called Christoph Sword Shop. Yes, yes. And he was buying swords wholesale and selling them retail. And you know, he never made a lot of money, but he learned a lot of lessons. Mm-hmm. Another uh, area is a, a service-based business. So can you be better than the average person at washing windows Mm -hmm. or detailing a car Mm -hmm. or cleaning a house or yard work or dog sitting or dog walking. Or, you know, if if you were just to do a simple web search on service business ideas, you'd get hundreds of potential things. And then maybe it's super part-time. Maybe it's just, you know, you and dad – cleaning the windows of two or three buildings on a Saturday yep. twice a month, right? That's that's not a huge commitment of time, but you're starting to learn yep. all these aspects. Probably the, the one that I was most impressed with was, and I've met many teenage entrepreneurs, and so I've seen a lot of them, but the one I never thought about until this kid said he was doing it was maintaining fish tanks in professional offices. Oh, I love that. Right? So let's say you're a dentist or you're a, you know, you've got some office and people come in all the time and they have a waiting room. And uh, research shows that fish tanks help to create a calming effect. I love that. They have a, 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 I won't say tranquilizing, (laughs) that means something different, but they are emotionally relaxing Yeah, just because fish kind of float around happily. Mm -hmm. They don't worry about stuff. (laughs) There's little violence going on. It's better than a screen. But if you're, you know, if you're a professional, you you don't want to have to mess with the tank. You don't want to have to figure out what to put in and keep the pH balance and clean the algae and all that. And, you know, you've got an office. And this is enhancing your office. Well, here's you know a 16-year-old kid who knows all about fish. Go in. I'll give you. I'll set you up with a fish tank, and I will come in every week or two, and I will be sure it's clean and operating and has good-looking fish and all that for X dollars a month. Right. Well, when you're in that world of being a professional, that's a no-brainer. Mm-hmm. That's a no-brainer. You've got margin in your Operating accounting budget. Yeah, sure. to to have something like that. And and I almost think if a kid walked in the door and said, I'll do this for you here at the IEW office, I'd be very tempted, you know. Exactly. Especially if it was, you know, reasonable. Mm-hmm. So that was the one that kind of impressed me. And uh, I guess this kid did quite well with it. He was making thousands of dollars a month. Right. 
which when you're 16, that's pretty good. Yep, that's pretty good. That'll fund your college um, experience. Entrepreneurial ideas. And then, you know, to finish up, I have heard uh, lots of stories of kids who have found different ways to essentially be an adult at a younger age Mm. by operating in the world where mostly it's adults. Sure. One area I think is particularly accessible is to volunteer on a political campaign. Right, sure. Because uh, you're not under, you know, labor laws. You may find that there's a candidate that you can really believe in, Mm -hmm. you know, whose positions, whose ideals, whose vision aligns very much with the world you'd like to see. And you can then whether it's working in the office there on the phones or door to door or sending emails. or I met uh, one girl in Texas. She was 16. She had volunteered for, it was a state legislator from her zone. I don't remember exactly how Texas legislature is set up, but it was a state lawmaker. And she got on his campaign and he won. And he liked her so much she was such a good communicator. She had done our writing program for many years. <laughs> I was wondering. Um, he actually put her in charge of writing his monthly or weekly or however, his regular newsletter to constituents. Oh, I love she that. She became the editor of his communication to his constituents. And then she was getting paid. Yep. So the the campaign was the volunteer but she stood out because of her skills. Yep. And so at 16, 17 years old, she's got a job working for a state legislator in Texas doing communications for him. Yep. And she never went to college to get her communications or political science, right? I mean, she right. was right in there. Now, maybe she would go right. and sure. continue her education. But what a phenomenal experience. Yes. You know, at that age. Yep. Um, so, you know, a political campaign, I think, is a very reasonable way for kids to get involved. And it's a totally adult world. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, you you do what you say and you say what you do and you hold yourself accountable and other people hold you accountable. And, and then you get the thrill, you know, of the election and and maybe winning, or maybe not, and you learn something both ways. Yep, yep. Kind of alongside that would be internships. Mm. That's a little bit harder, I think, to find. But at the same time, you know, if you had a 16-year-old kid who was super interested in something like veterinary medicine, and you came in and said, I'd like to work for free in this office for six months and learn as much as I can about what you do. I mean, it'd be pretty, pretty hard for someone to say, no, thank you. I mean, I suppose they could. But first of all, if you were the vet in charge of the office, you'd be kind of delighted, right? And you'd say, well, this is the right approach. And to work for free shows a level of interest and commitment that is beyond, I need a job. Sure. So internships, other kind of volunteer opportunities. And I will throw in this thought because it touches back on what we mentioned in terms of What if you did a year or two of college before you finished your high school age? Right. You'd kind of schedule-wise be ahead Mm -hmm. of most of your peers. Sure. And that might give you some time to do something you might not otherwise do. Right. A gap year. 
I love that. Yes. And what could you do with that? Well, travel, Mm -hmm. go on a missions trip if Mm -hmm. you're so inclined, do one of these other things, get really involved in a volunteer operation. Right. You know, if your parents are willing to keep feeding you and letting you stay at home. So there'd be a freedom to experience kind of real life in a much deeper, more meaningful way than I think most kids get working part-time or during the summer in high school and then going straight off and doing four years of college when they're 18 to 22. So you could buy yourself a little time by hacking high school. Yes. And with that, accelerate the process of gaining experience and maturity to be successful in an adult world. And honestly, I think that right there is probably the thing that would make most teenagers the most happy because what do they want? What do we all want? So what I hear Jordan Peterson say just last night, satisfaction in life is gained by taking on greater levels of responsibility. Yes. You have three kids. That's a lot of responsibility, (laughs) right? It's not going to be easy, but it's a lot of responsibility and you will gain satisfaction from that. So I think we need to rethink high school and kind of go back and have a much higher expectation of what high school students are capable of in terms of growing up and operating in the adult world to some degree. I have nothing to add to that. That was fun. I hope it helps somebody out there. Hey, write to us and let us know if you've done any of these things or if this has sparked a new idea that maybe I didn't have because uh, I'm, I'm constantly interested to know what do our listeners think about the things we just sit here and mouth off about. <laughs> Thank you, Andrew. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. Or just visit us each week at IEW.com slash podcasts. Here you can also find show notes and relevant links from today's broadcast. One last thing. Would you mind going to iTunes to rate and review our podcast? This really helps other smart, caring listeners like you find us. Thanks so much.